If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How do you surface the stories of women in the Roman Empire when the majority of ancient texts were written by men, telling of military victories and losses or intrigues in the political arena? That's something that Emma Southern has been grappling with in her latest book, Chronicling Hundreds of Years of Roman History, all through the lives of just 21 women. Emma joined Eleanor Evans to share some of their stories. Emma, thank you so much for coming back on the History Extra podcast. It's really lovely to be chatting to you again. Uh, And last time we were talking about Agrippina the Younger, and you have a raft of of other Roman women to talk about with us today. I wanted to start by asking, as your book does, with a question about an anecdote regarding some students at an American college in the 1970s who asked for a course on women in Roman history. Tell us, how does that go? So this is a story that comes from Amy Richland, who is one of the like first generation of uh, historians who wrote about Roman women in classics. And she says they asked their professor, their very eminent professor if, uh, at Ivy League University in America, if they could have a course studying Roman women. Like, what were women doing in the background of all these Cicero stories? And their professor told them that he may as well do a module on Roman dogs, um, because as far as he was concerned, women were not part of what you were supposed to be learning about. When you came to learn classics or you came to learn about Roman history, then you came to learn about Cicero and Caesar, and that's about it. And the reaction of the students was to say, "Mm, I don't think so. (laughs) And several of them went on, including Amy Richland, to be very prominent um, researchers about women's lives and how women were written about and how women appeared in Roman sources and revolutionised the field about 50 years after every other field, in fairness. (laughs) Um, But ancient history likes to hang on to things for a bit longer than everyone else. And that was really one of the beginnings of when people started writing about Roman women, which remains kind of a bit of a niche 
area of study is still something that when we talk about Romans to people, they immediately think either emperors or they think about the Roman army or maybe Roman buildings, but they very rarely think about Roman women. And even in textbooks and things, up until fairly recently, you would still find that you would have an overview of the Roman world, and then you would have a chapter that said women and slaves, as if those were either distinct categories or categories that don't overlap in any way, like what about female slaves? <laughs> or that they, they're just like a marginalised bit of colour that you can squish into one chapter rather than being 50% of the population and always in every class, every part of Roman life and as much a part of Roman history, as much as part of the politics and the war and all of the rest of it as men were. Absolutely. Uh, and building on, on a lot of that work is is your new book, A History of the Roman Empire and 21 Women. Can you introduce our listeners to how you approach uh, these women's stories? So I decided to do the entirety of Roman history from the foundation of Rome all the way through to the fall of the Western Roman Empire, because I had to end somewhere uh, in 476. So quite a few hundred years worth of history. And I decided that I wanted at least one woman from every period, because the other thing about Roman history is it tends to really cluster around the late Republic and that period of Cicero and Caesar and then the earliest Julio-Claudian emperors and so you get a 200 year period where everybody's talking but then before that and all of those bits between Rome being founded and Rome becoming an empire um, and after that all of the bits where the empire is just existing tend to get left out so I wanted to do all of it and some of those periods it was super easy to find women and some of them it was slightly harder but I also wanted to encompass as much of the empire as I could and so to not just focus on Rome as a city, but Rome as an empire, and to bring in women from all around the empire, so from Syria, from Egypt, from Britain, and to show various different classes as well. So we have women coming into contact with the empire, women who work, women who are poets, and not just the very elite at the top of the pyramid in the city of Rome. So we're going to dig into a few of those stories over the next sort of half an hour or so. But I think it's important to uh, emphasise, as you do as well, that these experiences you write about, it, their stories aren't just illuminating the experiences of being a woman in this period, are they? They're shining a light on on all of society, of, of the moral questions, of, of what it means to be a person in the ancient Roman Empire. And very often what it means to be a Roman. How do you define Romanness when Rome incorporates the entirety of the Mediterranean? <laughs> How do you define what Romanness is when that person has never been to Rome, but they're not only a Roman citizen? So Zenobia is one that I've included, who is very often portrayed as exclusively a Syrian woman. She is a woman who raised herself up to be an empress, called herself Augusta, and declared herself empress of the Roman Empire, much to the consternation of the guy who was at that time emperor. <laughs> but it was a time when everybody was declaring themselves emperor, so it wasn't necessarily up to the ordinary. But because she's a woman, and because she is from Syria, she tends to be considered to be exclusively a Syrian woman, and therefore she's often seen as a woman coming from the outside and trying to invade the Roman Emperor. But her name is Julia. She is a member of the Julian clan. She is a Roman citizen. Her husband is not only a citizen, but is also given consular rank. So he's 
technically a consul of Rome and she has um, senatorial rank. So she is very Roman and what she does when she declares herself an empress is mints Roman coins and writes Roman documents and engages in Roman bureaucracy. And so she, to me, is clearly a Roman, but it, she sit, kind of sits on that line of because she is a woman, her Romanness tends to be undermined. If she had been a man, then she would have been seen as a usurper, but because she's not, she is seen completely differently. And you get these quite often, these these questions about how a Roman is defined centres very often on women and how they engage with the empire. Well, we have the foundational myth, of course, of of Rome, of the city that was built. Obviously, women play quite a significant part in this story, don't they, even though they might never be named per se? Only about three of them get names, yes. The founding story of Rome is called the Rape of the Sabine Women, although most of the sources will go out of their way to say that it's not that. It's rapers in kidnapping. But the story goes that Romulus founded his city, um, and he has a band of men um, and then he opens up his new city to any man who wants to come from any situation around Italy. He will forgive you if you have um, committed any crimes. He will release you from slavery if you have been enslaved. He will. You can come and be a citizen of his lovely new city, which is great for about a year. And then they realise that then these people are not bringing wives and um, and there have got no women and you can't have a city without women because or you can't you know procreate basically you can't have more children you can't have more romans without women so he goes around all the cities and says can we can we marry your women please and they all say absolutely not <laughs> you are a city of murderers and enslaved people and we are not giving our daughters to you so he sets up a brilliant plan where he says he has found a, an altar um, and he's consecrating a new god and he wants to invite everybody to have a party sorry for asking for your daughters but do bring them all round for a party and some games and then when everybody has come to to celebrate this new god they sit down and at a predetermined point he gives a signal and all of the roman men carry off all of the women who have come to visit. So all of the unmarried women and daughters are carried off um, and taken into the homes of Roman men and literally parceled out. And this is the founding story of, of, of Rome, but it's also the founding story of Roman marriage and how important it is. And this then starts a war, which goes on for a, a good couple of years between Rome and everybody else. Rome is almost defeated because a girl called Tarpeia, who's also in the book, lets the Sabines in, uh, lets the enemy in, which is a great way of getting out of looking like you let people through your walls. You, they didn't come, they weren't stronger than you. They didn't get over your walls. They, a girl let them in. <laughs> and the Sabine women is, throw themselves into the middle of the battle and say, we're married now, which means that you are family, which means that now we have fathers-in-law fighting sons-in-law we have grandfathers fighting and therefore you all have to come together um, because either way you're going to leave us the women in the middle either bereaved of a husband or bereaved of a father and therefore you have to stop fighting and everybody goes oh yeah okay and then they join together into one beautiful harmonious family and the point of women therefore is to join families together into one beautiful harmonious political unit this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging 
so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Okay, so women clearly very pivotal there in those those early, early uh, years as a republic. But um, before we go much further, I think it would be really great to touch upon, you, you mentioned Tarpeia and her story. Who is telling that story? How are you looking at it? What sort of lenses are on these women across this span of history? The very fun thing about the earliest years of Roman history, the kind of semi-mythical years of Aeneas and Romulus and all the way through, is that the sources we have for them were written in the late Republic and the early Empire. They were written under the first Emperor Augustus, specifically as part of his campaign to realign Roman morals to what he considers to be traditional Roman morals. Um, and so it becomes really circular. They're using older sources, but they are definitely writing for an audience and trying to convince them that marriage is brilliant, that you can gain prestige and glory through your family life and not just through fighting for political status. And so they are very much skewed by this knowledge that it's uh, Livy and Dionysus of Halicarnassus particularly, um, but also Plutarch, who is writing later, that they are writing within a cultural moment that is trying very hard to reorient Roman cultural mores, which makes it hard because you don't know what the older versions of that story are. You know that there are different versions because Dionysus and Plutarch in particular are really good at saying, like one of the things that they argue about is they'll say, oh, this historian says there were 632 women and this historian says that there were 400 and this historian says that there were 30. So we know that there are lots of different versions. We just don't have access to them. So you have to kind of go in with the knowledge that the version you're looking at was created in a specific moment for a specific purpose, but also that it was super influential, like that was the version that won and it is the version that was told and retold throughout the imperial period. So for all of, but for all of the kind of mythical early Republic kingdom period of Roman history, that first kind of, 200 years, you know you're looking at a myth that has been created, not an objective history. That's really good. I'm going to hold that on my head and I'm sure listeners will hold that in, in that, their heads as, <laughs> as we move forward, that sort of big caveat there, I suppose. We are going to push on. Uh, we're obviously not going to hit all 21 women in this podcast, probably, because that would be quite a long episode, but um, we picked out a few. Could we turn to, to Opia? And I think many people might be familiar with the Vestal Virgins, but it might be... Um, great to have a reminder here. So the Vestal Virgins are the main priestesses of Rome. There's more priestesses in Rome than you think there are because a lot of the Roman priests have wives who are very important 
like you're not allowed to be unmarried and have this job uh, so they're not the only ones but they are by far the most important roman priestesses and their job is to be consecrated virgins so they are chosen between the age of six and ten um, and they have to promise to be virgins for 30 years and they care for the hearth of Rome, the sacred fire in the centre of Rome, which burns and is um, both a representation of Rome's power, but also a protection. And that flame going out is a disaster, but also somebody approaching that flame in a state that is unpleasing to the gods is a disaster. And they're kind of a fascinating insight into one how strange Roman religion is because so much of it is very ancient. It comes from kind of Etruscans, it comes from pre-Roman practices. They didn't necessarily know why they were doing stuff a lot of the time. They just knew they had been doing it for a thousand years. <laughs> and so they were never very good at explaining. Like they could never explain why Vestals had to be virgins. They just knew in their bones that they had to be. <laughs> and so Opia is the second of the Vestal virgins that we know of who was um, executed for approaching the flames in a state of impurity. So she had had sex in some way. We do not know how old she was. We do not know how long she had been a Vestal Virgin. So theoretically, she could be anywhere between the age of six and 56. But she is identified as having lost her virginity because there are wars, um, some people that... Um, the Romans thought they had subdued, who were quite close by, they stop kind of rebel against Roman power. So they stop being pleased with the idea that the Romans have subdued them. And then there is also a kind of pestilence. And then there start being omens all the way around Roman territory. So animals start talking and two-headed cows are born and um, rains of blood and that kind of thing, which are reported, which is, starts an investigation. And this is one of my favourite things about the Romans, which is that no matter what happens, they will start some paperwork. <laughs> they will really do some paperwork about it. <laughs> um, so they get together a committee of priests to investigate and they come back with the answer that A religious right has been done incorrectly. So they start a secondary investigation <laughs> and that investigation investigates all of the rights to see which ones could have gone wrong and they conclude that one of the Vestal Virgins has lost her virginity and that it is necessary to um, have her executed because uh, the Vestal Virgins are so incredibly special that they're the only priests that cannot expiate the sin of doing a right incorrectly by redoing the right because you can't get your virginity back the only way they can do it is to execute her and that's the only way you can make the gods like you again and so they had they've invented this very powerful way of uh, executing someone without actually executing them or basically it's a sacrifice like at its essence it is a sacrifice of the vestal virgin to the goddess vesta so that she will forgive you for touching the fire with um, non-virginal hands and so they give her a fake funeral and they march her outside uh, march her to the city walls and then they bury her alive they put her in a pit that's specially specially built which has a bed in it some oil some milk and some bread and then they seal that up and leave her in there that way they can say basically she was alive when we last saw her and we gave her some bread and milk and oil. So it's not really our fault if she just happens to die in there, which is 
an extraordinary amount of thinking around the problem, <laughs> but means that we know her name more than anything. Vestal Virgins exist before, for far before written history, and they don't finish until the fourth century when Gratian um, decides that they're going to not have them anymore. The only names that we know, apart from maybe three, are Vestal Virgins who were executed or were who were accused of impropriety, accused of losing their virginity, and then were able to do a miracle to save themselves. But most of them, and it is kind of the ultimate expression of well-behaved women don't make history <laughs> uh, if you're a good vestal virgin then you are you just don't get written down ever and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women who were vestals and did their jobs and did them well and were you know lauded beautifully for it during their lifetime um were completely forgotten their names were written down at one point have now vanished but if you're a vestal virgin who has badly behaved in some way or who was the victim of something then um you you got your name written in history books and they last longer than inscriptions and that's definitely a phenomenon throughout your book isn't it of, of women who exhibit quote good behavior seem to have vanished and those who've transgressed in some way by being a sex worker or committing adultery or something like that. They're the ones that are being surfaced. I mean, where else do we see that in your book? I mean, you see it everywhere. Like um, the vast, the only way that women get written about is when they are not behaving themselves. That's the only way that men are interested in them because men write the sources and men are writing about politics and war because that's what they think is important. And so 99.9% .9 of the time they are only interested in women if they are behaving badly or if they can make it look like they are behaving badly. So one of my all-time favourite women really ever is Claudia who has, she has an outsized impact on the late Republic because um, two men wrote about her so much and she kind of created a series of waves in Roman history. So she we had known her from Cicero's letters, um, which he wrote about the politics of the period because she was the sister of um, Publius Clodius Pulcher, who was kind of bad boy of his era Cicero calls Claudia his trumpeter like his war trumpeter so she's walking in front of him and then she is the wife of a consul Metellus and then she is a powerful kind of woman in her own right she's preposterously rich but she's very invested in politics and so in Cicero's letters she comes across very much as a woman who is constantly running messages, very involved in the politics of the period, very involved in who is going to sit where in the games, who gets to do what at the theatre, passing messages between Caesar and Atticus and Atticus and Cicero and Cicero and Pompey and all, you know, making sure, like really greasing the wheels of the politics of the late Republic. But then she also appears in two other sources which give a completely different um, perspective on her. One is Cicero's speech, which uh, defending a client of his, in which his client, who is like his little protege, is accused of trying to murder a diplomat and then trying to murder Clodia. It doesn't come across great, but Cicero's entire defense is that Clodia made him do it by seducing him by being so seductive and doing terrible things like having parties and having gardens where boys come and paint depicts her as this kind of cougar older woman who um, is insatiable and just wants sex all the time and will have sex with anyone for money and the, has this great detail that he, she, 
She has a, a statue in her house, which is decorated in tokens that she takes from her lovers, which I just imagine is a statue covered in like pants. And yeah, that she has seduced uh, his client, that she has um, tricked him into getting involved in all these murders and that she's framed him for trying to murder her, which is a really powerful image in its own right because Cicero is such a good writer. And then on top of that, we have Clodia the Lover because she appears in Catullus's love poems as Lesbia. And there she is, he is completely in love with her, except for when he is having sex with all these other people. But that doesn't count because he loves her. And she is Lesbia with her little sparrow and she loves it. And she is Lesbia who loves him and he wants to kiss her a thousand times. And he is, or she is Lesbia who has broken his heart and run off with somebody else. And Lesbia who will, he never thought she was pretty anyway. And <laughs> it's, it's this thing where you don't have her, you don't have Clodia, you never have her own words or anything that she she says or does but you have these three perspectives on her of three people looking at her in completely different ways that give you a, a rounded portrayal of a woman being political and sexy and apparently engaged in murders occasionally and also being a lover and a tender romantic person that gives you a rounded portrayal of the multiple sides of Clodia that you do not get for most people but you wouldn't recognize the lesbian necessarily unless you had the Clodia of Cicero <laughs> she is wonderful and she is she really stands out in that in a, a crowded field of republican women who are behaving badly as as a great one so um, if she's misbehaving, quote, in this, this sort of upper strata of society, and as you say, we, we, we can find her through the words, words of others, there are some women who can be surfaced through different kinds of testimony or artefacts. One I wanted to turn to is Julia Felix. Can you introduce us to this wonderful story? So Julia Phoenix is the owner-operator of a leisure complex in Pompeii. Um, and we know that she was and we know what her building was because at the time that Vesuvius erupted and buried Pompeii, she had just put up a sign offering her buildings to let. So she was obviously thinking of retiring from the leisure management hospitality industry. And she there was a sign outside her building that was offering the complex, which included baths and uh, some shops and some lovely gardens and a little restaurant and a food bar for rent for the period of five years and it gives her name Julia Felix. Before that was found archaeologists thought they were looking at just a very very big fancy villa. It's two kind of villa complexes um, put together and afterwards they realised that what they were looking at was a deliberately created leisure place to go a leisure center basically it's like the complex that you go to that has a bowling alley and a cinema and some restaurants except this is a kind of up, slightly upper class kind of middle classy establishment it's got some baths which she says in her advert are designed for the well-to-do so they're nice and they do have nice mosaics and things um then there's a hot food bar for buying food on the street but there's also inside a tiny little um, dining room, which is designed for people to come in and have dinner and recline. So reclining and eating um, in a little triclinarium, which is like in the on a 
proper little couch like and then having somebody bring food to you is very upper class dining in roman culture um, and it is not something that is accessible to everybody it is a luxury it's like going for a michelin starred meal or for a really nice night out and she offers this to people who can't afford to have it all the time but might be able to afford to have it for one night and it's this beautiful space with baths on one side and then it's got a garden with a little canal running through it and tiny little bridges so you can walk around the garden and look at the fishies and listen to the running water and then the dining room has a water feature in it so the water comes down the back wall and then kind of bubbles up in the middle of the room it disappears and then bubbles back up again Um, and it's all painted with scenes of Africa so it's got rhinoceroses and hippopotamuses so it's very very escapist and it is such a beautiful like that part of Roman life as women as business owners even running and managing big businesses and dealing with the world on an economic level is almost invisible in most of the sources that we have and so and also just that entire business class of of Roman life these people who own shops or work in shops or have to go to the market to buy a new shoes is almost just the most probably the most invisible (laughs) Um, and so she's a delight to look at um, and that she's living this life in Pompeii well a lot of our listeners will know no spoiler to say what happened in Pompeii hopefully to lots of our listeners do we know is it known what what happened to Julia Felix we don't know what happened to her we do know that a female skeleton wearing a lot of gold jewellery was found in the middle of the gardens. Specifically, it seems to have been trying to get to the... There was a shrine to Isis at the end of the garden um, and whoever it was seems to have been running there. So you can... Depends on whether you think it's a happy ending or not. And I had some debates with people about this. I think secretly think it's a happy ending that she kind of went down with her ship, but other people were like, would it not be happier if she escaped? <laughs> So it might be her. It might be uh, certainly as somebody is a woman wearing gold jewelry, gold earrings, like who has a decent amount of money, who is the only person I think that was found in that building. So possibly she did not make it out. Well, whatever her fate, I mean, it is just a fascinating story, fascinating bit of history to to shine a window on this. And another woman, sorry, I'm going to rattle onwards again, is Julia Balbilla. Now she's another one who who really catches catches the eye in in the raft of women in your book. Can we learn more about her? She's brilliant. Um, she technically is the one of the female poets with the like most extant poems from the entirety of the ancient world because not a lot of poetry survives, but we have more extant poems from her than I think we do from Sappho because she wrote her poems down by having them inscribed on the leg of a statue in Egypt, which is a great way to make sure that you are not forgotten. And she seems to have been really, really determined to not be forgotten. She is the granddaughter of a uh, Syrian king from the kingdom of Khomein who were absorbed by force into the Roman Empire and she grew up kind of alternately in uh, Rome and Athens. We know her brother, her brother built a, a massive mausoleum for himself in Athens, which you can still see. It's huge and it portrays him as a Syrian king, a Roman consul and also a Athenian scholar. 
And she has all of these in her as well. Um, but the way that she has herself remembered is she visited the Colossus of Memnon, which is a statue in Egypt, uh, which during the Roman period sang for a 200-year period in Roman history. It's been there since like 1500 BCE. Uh, but for 200 year period it sang when the dawn hit it something would happen inside and it would make a loud noise at dawn and people would come from all over to see it and Julia Balbia came with Hadrian and Hadrian's wife Sabina not that long after Hadrian's uh, boyfriend had died and they went to visit Memnon and the first day that they went he did not sing and so Julia wrote a poem about this fact in which she is delightful to Sabina and she kind of writes this teasing poem people are really horrible about her poetry like throughout history people have been really mean about how good she is at her poem she is not particularly good but she writes this nice poem about how the god Memnon had not sung because he wanted Sabina to come back because Sabina is so pretty that he wanted to see her again <laughs> um, but that he should sing because Hadrian the lord of all needs him to sing um, and commands it and then the next day they come back and he does sing so um, she adds a little poem about that. Sabina also writes a little poem, which is like one line long and even worse. It just says, I was here, basically. <laughs> but then she writes two more poems, which are basically showing off her knowledge and her education of Egyptian and Greek myth. So she knows who Memnon is. She knows who Memnon really is, which, like which pharaoh he is, what the stories are about him in various epics. Um, and then she concludes by putting on both of them her name and then her family's name. So she says that she is the granddaughter of Balbia and she is the granddaughter of the King of Khmein. And therefore she makes it so that we can identify exactly who she is and we can we know that she has this combined Roman, Greek, Syrian identity. And she puts that on all of her poems in a manner that suggests that she really wants people to know who she specifically is that she's not just anybody she's not going to use like a a throwaway name she's not going to just put Julia or Balbia or she's going to be like I am Julia Balbia and my dad is this and my granddad is this and I am this Julia Balbia not any other Julia Balbia and she also goes out of her way to make very clear connections to she claims divinity through her Syrian heritage um, and so she does that but she also and this is the thing that I really like about it she writes them in Aeolic which is Sappho's dialect which by the time she's writing in like 120 CE is dead no one is reading writing talking in that language unless you're reading Sappho it is a, a completely it's like me writing in old English in the language of Beowulf like it is such a specific choice to make to write in a dead complicated language and to force new lines into old old language is is such an amazing thing to have done and then to pay to inscribe them on a 2000 year old statue <laughs> so that we can still read them and that we know she existed and we know that she had this really complicated identity whereby she hung around with the Roman Emperor and has Julia as a name is a Roman is at the very center of Roman power all the time but also going out of her way to say also I am Greek also I am Syrian also I am this person and none of those things take away from any other parts of my identity 
I love reading about her and, and to pick up on, on, on the language, the language that you mentioned that was the same as Sapa used and, and the language that she maybe uses about Sabina as well. What conclusions, what have some people drawn from those two things? When I was writing this book, actually, I was kind of saying who I was including. I said, Julia Belbia and uh, the person I was talking to grabbed me and went, oh, Sabina's girlfriend. <laughs> Because she talks about Sabina as being very beautiful a good couple of times and she calls her lovely um, and because she uses the language of Sappho and Sappho is obviously, you know, sapphic and lesbian both come from Sappho um, and so people have wondered whether she chose that particular language to identify herself as being either queer herself or in a relationship with or in love with Sabina as to whether when she chose to write an Aeolic she was choosing to draw on a tradition of sapphic love or whether she was choosing to identify herself with Sappho because Sappho was considered to be the kind of the female Homer basically you had the bard and then you had the poet and the the poet is Sappho the tenth muse and so is she saying Homer is for men and Sappho is for women or is she saying I'm choosing Sappho because I'm in love with Sabina it's a careful way to do it because you're going to be it's not coming out exactly if she is because you would have to be able to You'd have to be educated enough to recognise that language. You'd have to be rich enough to visit the area. And you would, even if you could recognise it, you would have to have a very high level of specific education to read what she's written. And so if it's a very coded way of doing, of, of coming out if she is. Well, there are so many enduring questions about that. I think, you know, the, obviously the, the hugely significant thing is that she left these signs or symbols there for people to you know decipher many, many centuries later, millennia later. In comparison to other women in your your book who maybe have one or two lines written about them, how do you how do you go about surfacing the, the twenty one women that you focus on in this book? Tell me about that process. It's tough work. Some periods, it's super easy. There's so many women to choose from. Like the late Republic, I could have done fifty women on the late Republic and late antiquity as well. Because when you get Christian women, Christianity really lifts women's voices because it lifts up different genres basically and you get writing and work that is not just men writing about war but when you do have just men writing about war so for the early republic and the middle republic for example it's super hard because the archaeology is very limited there's not very much epigraphy so I have epigraphy in the book uh, but it's really hard to to find women in that period that there is more than a single line about and archaeology is is the same like if you want to write about individual women you can find a thing but it's super hard to write more than two sentences <laughs> so what I did was I combed through and made an enormous list of all the women that I possibly could think of that I could thought I could write more than a hundred words <laughs> Because I really did not want to just stick to women who are written about because when you are stuck with women from texts only, you have women who are written by men. 99.9% of the time and when they're not written by men when you have people like there's other poets as Sulpica for example but there's a whole debate because people don't want to believe that she wrote her own poems about whether that was written by are they written by a man maybe pretending to be a woman in Pompeii there's um there's graffiti that's written by women using 
feminine I pronouns, but there's still arguments. Was it written by a man pretending to be a woman? Um, and And so there's so few women who have written whose writing has survived, and then they are kind of reduced to say a woman didn't write it. And then all the other women in writing are written by men, and they are therefore usually caricatures or stereotypes or they're doing something in the narrative which is not just existing as women and so I really wanted to find women in archaeology and in epigraphy and people like Julia Balbia and Julia Felix and um, uh, Claudia who is in the Vindolanda letters um, who I've got having her birthday parties (laughs) Um, and so I really tried my very best to find those women that would um, illuminate part of life outside of just the textual material. But yeah, it's a terrifying list. I wouldn't recommend ever reading. <laughs> we, we won't include that one in the show notes. Um, so <laughs> so uh, yeah, you, as you say, your book is full of women who do just that and you've, you've written wonderful accounts of them. Um, can we perhaps leave listeners with question? Do you have your favourite? Do I have a favourite? I do love Julia Felix, I have to say. I think she's wonderful. <laughs> I love the idea of her just sitting in her office because her like the thing that we think is her office is there and it's decorated with like food and paintings of tea towels. I think you get such a powerful image of her as a person like running this building and she like arranges to have a road moved in Pompeii and she is running kind of like all these different businesses she's a landlady she's got a bath she's got a dining room she's doing I think that she is an ideal sitcom persona and I really want someone to write me a sitcom about her but she's probably my favorite I just think she's wonderful (laughs) that was Emma Southern her book a history of the Roman Empire in 21 women is published by one world and is out now Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.